0: For those of you who are working professionals, I don't need to define for you what organizational chaos looks like. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Shifting priorities, unclear direction, unstable processes, unhappy customers, disengaged employees. Organizational chaos can happen in any company, organization, trade associations, schools, and even churches. This type of chaos can also be seen in family units and friendship groups. As Karen Martin writes, in many of the organizations with which I've worked, I've noticed that managers and workers simply don't see the chaos or the causes of chaos around them. This type of blind spot is similar to what is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect after two psychologists who described it. The Dunning-Kruger effect notes that people who are truly incompetent don't know that they are incompetent. They lack the knowledge that allows them to understand the difference between competence and incompetence. She continues, My colleague, Tim Ogden, introduced me to the work of economist, Lant Pritchard, who describes this process as isomorphic mimicry, a phrase that means the copying of forms rather than functions. These pretenders will fool you if you don't look too closely, but they can't execute when it really matters." Pritchett uses it to explain why so many years of work by high-powered consultants and billions of dollars of aid to developing countries hasn't produced well-functioning government institutions. These efforts often have been focused on getting the governments to mimic the government institutions in developed countries as they exist today. But these developing countries and their institutions usually do not achieve what's needed These institutions in the developed countries usually develop and change over a long period of time and work only because of the behaviors, capabilities, culture, and habits that naturally develop. For example, we wonder why some government sectors in the Philippines are so inefficient when they are modeled in form after best practices around the world. But unchanged or unresolved root issues and attitudes prevent improvements from taking place. Even if you have the latest and greatest computer systems, if you have a lazy or corrupt person working those great computer systems, you won't get the output that you want. When Toyota's success first came to the attention of Western auto manufacturers in the 1970s, Toyota's efficiency and productivity were so much greater than those of its competitors that executives at Ford, General Motors and Chrysler simply didn't believe all the stories they were hearing were indeed true. This led to an avalanche of attempts to document what Toyota did differently. The conclusion of many of these early studies of Toyota focused on the tools they use: pull systems, work cells, and the like. Scores of companies copied the tools. They mimicked what they could see was different but failed to notice all the functional elements that truly make Toyota's lean system work. These organizations didn't notice the cracks in their own foundations, cracks based on invisible habits and behaviors. My friends, often at the core of organizational chaos, be it in secular or Christian organizations, among family and friendship units, is unresolved and unidentified root issues that create not only a toxic environment, but also allows insecurities, jealousies, and the worst of human sinful nature to percolate to the surface, but masked behind a facade. That is a mouthful, but simply put, unless the foundation is properly set in any organization or family or friendship unit, then there will be chaos and dysfunction for Christian organizations, businesses, schools, churches, and even in families, which does not honor the Lord, and it showcases a bad testimony to the unbelieving world. As we have studied some biblical principles of practical wisdom through the actions of wise King Solomon last week, we now want to see how Solomon used his God-given wisdom to wisely and efficiently administer and rule his country. From what is recorded in the Bible, Solomon did four things that helped unite and expand the kingdom of united Israel to allow it to prosper for God's glory. Let's study what four things Solomon did that we can emulate in our various organizational structures and family and friendship groups in order to be God-honoring and serve as a Christ-like witness to the world. As you hear these principles, they may sound like management or organizational principles, applicable only in the business world. But as we will see, they have direct applications even for families and friendship interactions. Now please turn with me in your Bibles to First Kings chapter four, as we continue our sermon series, Checkmate, looking at the life of King Solomon. First Kings chapter four. I read now verses one to six. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elihoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder, Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabud, the son of Nathan, the priest, and the king's friend. Ahishar, over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. These verses list the trusted people Solomon put in charge over various important responsibilities in his kingdom, from people serving as high priests to the commander of his army, to those having charge over the officer corps, his royal household, and the labor force. What is important to note is that however great the wisdom and personal capabilities of King Solomon, he couldn't do everything himself. He wisely delegated his authority and work in governing the kingdom to allow him to better lead God's people. In fact, this wise idea of a team-based approach to leading others, living life, and working and doing ministry is supported throughout the Bible. In Exodus chapter 18, we read that Moses was tiring himself, tiring himself out by serving as judge for all the people working from morning until the evening. It was his father-in-law, Jethro, who told him he had to delegate the work and empower others so that God's work through his leadership could be more effectively done. Of course, the people Moses chose to serve with him had to be qualified in their roles, and thus... Moses was able to govern and lead a very large, unruly group of people. We see this even in the New Testament. We see that Jesus sent out His disciples by pairs, which we read about in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. The early missionary teams of Paul and Barnabas were always two or more, as the book of Acts describes. The leadership of the early church was through the plurality of leadership the great missionary and church planner Paul appointed elders and leaders for the churches he started. He empowered people like Titus and Timothy to oversee multiple churches. He used Aquila and Priscilla to train others. He didn't do he didn't always do it all himself. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that every Christian is given at least one spiritual gift to edify the church, but no one has all the gifts. It was God's desire that everyone was to work together as a team for there to be unity even in diversity for the edification of the church body. And this is our first organizational wisdom principle, number one. Cultivate a team-based approach through delegation and empowerment. Cultivate a team-based approach through delegation and empowerment. This practical biblical principle is found in almost every management and organizational leadership book in the secular world as a best practice. Why? Because it is true to life. When the Apollo 13 space mission ran into a life-threatening emergency, it was a delegation that ultimately saved the flight crew. Flight director Gene Kranz delegated responsibility to his team of experts allowing them to use their specialized knowledge to find a solution to the crisis. By doing so, Krantz was able to guide the team toward a successful recovery and bring the space crew safely back to Earth. However, the absence of delegation may end in a catastrophe. The Panama Canal was built between 1904 and 1914 to connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The chief engineer of the project, John Stevens, initially refused to delegate tasks to his subordinates. He insisted on personally overseeing every aspect of the project, from the evacuation or excavation to delivery of supplies. He was a micromanager. And this micromanagement style led to delays, cost overruns, and worker unrest. After Stevens resigned in 1907, his successor, George Washington Grothels, adopted a more collaborative approach, and delegated responsibilities to his team. This led to increased efficiency and productivity, and the canal was completed on time and under budget. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Warren Buffett, the billionaire investor, who's known for his hands-off management style. He believes in hiring talented people and giving them the autonomy to do their jobs without micromanaging them. Buffett is famous for only reading annual reports and memos from the CEOs of the companies he invests in, rather than getting involved into the day-to-day operations. Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, is another example of a successful delegator. Schultz believed in hiring the best people and empowering them to make decisions on their own. He also encouraged collaboration and open communication within his team. One of Schultz's famous delegation stories involves a Starbucks store manager who came up with the idea to put the company's logo on cups, which eventually became a signature element of the brand. I would even go so far as to say that delegation and empowerment is how the Lord intended organizational leadership to be implemented for churches and Christian ministry effectiveness. When Jesus Christ gave His Great Commission... He was both delegating all of us and empowering each of us to do the work of evangelism and discipleship. Now, this doesn't mean we go out and do the work without any training, mentoring, and accountability, but the Lord promised in Matthew chapter 28 to be with us as we work together to fulfill God's great charge for each of His followers. Delegation and empowerment requires a lot of trust, but that's where Accountability comes in to make sure that the person is doing the task given. If not, then either discipline or further support may be needed to be given by the Lord. But at its root, we need to understand one person simply can't do everything. If you try, you will be stretched so thin you will not be effective. This is a principle that applies not only to organizations, churches, schools, but even in families. Let me give you an example. As your children get older, you need to let them take on more responsibilities and chores. When our own family stopped having a house helper six months ago after our helper of 14 years took ill, Cindy was running ragged, trying to pick up the slack amidst her other ministry work. She was often stressed and cranky. I eventually told her, unless you really love doing house tours, we can either hire another helper, or we can make our three teens take on added responsibilities. She chose the latter. So now my children, not that they're any more special than yours, but they fold their own clothes, they take turns washing the dishes, and they run various errands for us. This has made Cindy a little less stressed, and we got back a generally happier mom and wife. However, over dinner, once, my children asked, how come Dad wasn't delegated any work? (laughs) I responded, I work to bring in the money, and plus, I am empowering you to learn these vital life skills and chores. I already know how to do it. That's part of empowerment. You can use that with your kids. Also, my kids can now cook rice and fried eggs, they can survive in life, although that's all they know how to cook. And they may be eating fried eggs and rice for the rest of their lives, but at least they will be able to eat. So whether you are in the church, in your homes, in your place of work, in your studies, if you are in authority or in leadership, remember to cultivate a team-based approach to leadership through delegation and empowerment. If you never cut the apron strings, Don't wonder why your children never grow up. Look at verse 7. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. And you can read the names of these 12 governors in verses 8 to 20. In these verses, 12 governors were appointed to provide for the needs of the central government and the royal courts of King Solomon. We naturally assume that the 12 governors is because there are 12 tribes of Israel. But if we read verse 7 carefully, it is noted that there are 12 governors because each one was responsible for each of the calendar months of the year. The names and locations mentioned in these verses also show that while the tribal lands for the 12 tribes were considered and generally kept, These 12 districts under these governors were not necessarily in alignment with the tribal allocations. The 12 distinct districts set up by Solomon often cross multiple traditional tribal allocations of the land. Perhaps by intentionally doing this, Solomon removed the traditional barriers and boundaries that would have been in place with the tribal distinctions which had historically caused tensions before Solomon's reign— And we see it even after his reign. But by having this administrative and organizational setup, it would focus the entire nation on united goals, purposes, and responsibilities instead of looking out for their own tribal security and their own personal gain. What Solomon did in verses 7 to 20 was to remove traditional boundaries for a more unified focus and goal. And that's our second organizational wisdom principle, number two. Remove traditional boundaries for a more united focus and goal. Remove traditional boundaries for a more united focus and united goal. I think in any organization, and even in churches, all too often people build their own mini kingdoms within the larger organization to perhaps promote their own patronages to stroke their own egos, to get what they want, or to promote their own advocacies and agendas, forgetting that they are part of a bigger organization. Now, this is not to say that there can't be specialized outreaches and age-specific or segment-group focus to be more organizationally effective. What I'm talking about is when people create boundaries and barriers to protect their own interests and positions, or simply because they are insecure or selfish, or they want to matter. In fact, this was an issue, even in the early church, that the Apostle Paul had to remind the churches that he founded that they were to be united and not split into various groups or interest groups so that there can be a more unified focus and goal. For example, some in the church at Corinth were siding with the Apostle Paul Others were siding with the Apostle Peter, and still others identified most closely with Apollos. All of them were church leaders. That's why Paul wrote this response in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believe, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul's point was the church should be focused on Christ, united in the work that the Lord Jesus has given us. We don't need to identify with a specific personality or pastor, but to remember that Christ is the foundation of the church And the purpose of the church is to glorify Him and Him alone through the work of the Great Commission and living out the great commandment. Listen, politics has no place in the church. Politics has no place in this church. That's why at GCCP, we want alignment in all ministries and projects to the church's vision and mission. Personal projects or pet advocacy will not be found in this church. Any ministry of the church should not be identified with a singular pastor or person. GCCP is not Pastor Stephen's church. It is our church. The church will act to remove any barriers to unity and alignment. Using church ministries to dole out a personal vendetta or to stroke your own personal ego will not be tolerated here. I recently read an article by Roland Croucher about some of the greatest challenges facing the church today. In the article, he writes, Ethology is the study of the comparison between human and animal behavior. An important concept in ethology is the notion of territoriality, the practice of marking a piece of ground and defending it against intruders. Animals as diverse as fish, worms, gazelles, and lizards stake out particular areas and put up fierce resistance when intruders encroach on their area. Many species use odorous secretions to mark the boundaries of their territories. For example, the wolf marks its domain by urinating around the perimeter. Some scholars argue that people are territorial animals. Humans' genetic endowment drives them to gain and defend territory much as animals do. The list of territorial behaviors is endless. In a coffee shop, you protect your space with a book, a coat, or a notebook. You save a place in the theater or at the bench or even a seat here at the church, reserving a spot that is mine and ours. Gangs fight to protect their turf. Neighbors of similar ethnic backgrounds join forces to keep other groups out. Nations war over contested territory. Pastors accuse each other of sheep stealing. Turfism is rife in churches, Roland writes. The roster lady quits because someone didn't consult her about flowers left from the Saturday wedding. The organist won't play anything composed after the 1900s. The women's fellowship won't give the pastor or anyone else the key to their new room. The board chairman is angry because they met when he was away. An elder complains that the youth director took some kids to a Christian concert. The cleaner resigns because young people left chairs in disarray. The pastor is miffed when a Bible study group starts up without his knowledge. As a result of our fallenness, this planet and its inhabitants have substituted territoriality, my space, keep out for what should be hospitality, my space, you're welcome. And the Bible has many stories and injunctions about reversing this effect of the fall. Now, pastors and leaders of the church are invited to be hospitable rather than territorial, and it's something, however, they generally do very poorly. But the biblical models are clear. Now, I share this not to rebuke our church. I think this is not true in our church. Over the years, in the change of our culture, we've become very welcoming. But it is something we need to be reminded of so that we can watch out for it. Because as our church grows, there are many people who are coming, and they come with various agendas. Over the years, we as spiritual leaders have tried to remove as much of the territorial battles and boundaries we identify and prevent boundaries that may naturally go up from staying up for so long in order that we would be united. We've encouraged ministers and ministries to collaborate in crossing courage. Unlike before, today there are no my volunteers and my people. Everyone is part of the same church from the very same volunteer pool, all serving the same Lord, all with the same mission and purpose. So, if you want to sing in the choir this year, and next year you want to teach children, and in the following year you want to serve coffee, you go right ahead. The leaders will celebrate with you as you have a desire to serve. There should be no bad feelings that people change volunteering ministries because we are the same church. Look at verses 21 to 28. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fattened oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tipsa even to Gaza. "'Naming all the kings on this side of the river "'and he had peace on every side all around him. "'And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, "'each man under his vine and his fig tree, "'from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. "'Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses "'for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. "'And these governors, each man in his month, "'provided food for King Solomon "'and for all who came to King Solomon's table.' There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. In these verses, we find out that the kingdom Solomon ruled was vast. All the lands that he ruled experienced peace. There were no pressing threats from neighboring countries, as verse 24 notes. Verse 25 mentions that every person living under his protection felt safe and secure. And because of the peace that permeated throughout the land, each of the 12 districts were able to keep up with the daily demands and needs of Solomon's royal household along with the needs of his administration. And reading verses 22 to 23, we see that the daily needs were huge. But nothing disrupted this supply chain of foods, tributes, and supplies to sustain Solomon's army and chariots, and in fact, his entire administration. This peace allowed the region and the people living under his rulership to thrive. Verse 27 says, there was no lack in supply. Verse 28 tells us each person did as he was charged and was able to execute his responsibilities because there was no threat to them. They found a place that was safe and secure. With God's enablement and protection, Solomon wisely ruled his country in such a way that the people felt safe and secure without worry of outside threat, which allowed the people to thrive. And this is our third organizational wisdom principle number three. Create a safe and secure space for people to thrive. Create a safe and secure space for people to thrive. Historically, we see that when an empire and country experiences peace, the nation and people thrive. Take, for instance, the Pax Romana period of Roman history, where for more than 200 years from the beginning of Augustus Caesar's reign in 27 BC to the end of the reign of Marcus Aurelius in, 19, uh, excuse me, in 180 AD, you had unprecedented peace and economic prosperity throughout the Roman Empire for 200 years. During this time, the empire reached its peak land area from England in the north to Morocco in the south, from Spain in the west to Iraq in the east, with an estimated 70 million people, or 33% of the world's population, living under this peace. Not only did the empire grow rich and powerful, its citizens flourished as well, as the law, order, and stability marked this period. Biblically, this is significant because it was during this time that Jesus Christ was born into the world, where He died and resurrected in order to save mankind. Because of the peace that marked this time, the gospel message was able to quickly spread throughout the Roman Empire, and the early church was firmly established. Similarly, with God's enablement and protection, Solomon ruled wisely and created a safe and peaceful environment, not only for his people to thrive, but also, as we're going to study, to allow for God's temple to be built. The organizational wisdom of creating a safe and secure place is something we can apply in our various contexts and life situations. In the workplace, when we allow people to make mistakes, it removes some of the pressures of their jobs and allows them the opportunity to grow and learn. Of course, this has to be balanced with a wise leader knowing if that person is simply incapable of learning or they can learn and adapt. But generally, if a boss extends grace and provides a safe and secure environment in place, people will thrive and grow. In family units, when parents create a safe and secure environment, it assures the children and creates a loving atmosphere. It allows children, even parents, to mess up and not be perfect which in turn allows for grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, and love to be practiced. I remember when one of my children asked us openly, are you two getting a divorce? When that child witnessed us fighting, of course, it is inevitable that we would fight in front of them because we are all sinners and imperfect. But because my children all know that in our family, it is a safe place for them to ask any questions that they want. They were able to ask a a question like that. And we were able to lovingly explain that even if your mother and I fight, it doesn't mean we're automatically getting a divorce. That's why my teenage children now feel very open to ask me and Cindy any questions that they may have. When we gave them each the sex talk We specifically said, you can ask us any question you may have about this sensitive topic. I shared with my boys my own struggles and continual battles and told them it's normal for someone with a sin nature. I told them that acknowledging that we can stumble in this area of sexual sins is a great way to be aware of how we are tempted so we can tackle these issues And I'm glad my boys have shared with me intimate questions and areas in which they have struggled so we can openly address, support, and pray with them, while Cindy can also do the same with my daughter. It is the parent's responsibility to create a safe space and give security to their children where they can ask any questions about anything under the sun without condemnation. It will allow them to grow and thrive. I'm so glad that my children feel safe with us to share their feelings and emotions. Recently, one of my child brought up a dinner that it made them feel bad that classmates were cheating, but my child did not and got a lower score on the test. We assured the child that we are very proud that they did the right thing, and even with a lower grade, what is most important to us is their character. But the child said they still felt bad, at which point, We said, you can either report this matter to the school, to which the reply was, and I'll be made to look like the tattletale, or child, this is a learning experience for you for when you get into the real world. Because in the adult world, if you can manage these bad feelings you have because of unfairness and injustice, then you will be okay. Because we live in a fallen and sinful world. Listen, parents. Children who are not allowed to share their struggles And feelings in a safe and secure place within the family unit will find that security and acceptance in the chat rooms of discord telegram and other apps and who knows what type of ungodly advice they will receive church wise know my friends that we have cultivated in our church a culture that welcomes questions there are no dumb questions only dumb people who don't ask questions You won't be judged for asking questions related to matters of faith or matters of why church does things this way or that way or the policies that we have. You see, the buzzword of today's secular culture is we need to create a safe space. If there is that space, then people will thrive. But know this, a biblical safe space is not an anything-goes place or we're all opinions, and falsehoods are accepted. But it is a place where matters of faith can be explored and feelings and emotions can be expressed with listeners who listen with love, understanding, and compassion. And that's why I can't wait for when the Prince of Peace comes and rules on this earth and creates the ultimate safe space for a thousand years at the millennium. That's why we read all throughout the scriptures, especially in the books of Isaiah and Revelation, that this is what the world is looking forward to, that time when peace will reign and people will truly thrive. Look at verses 29 to 34. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite. And Haman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees, from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that sprang out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom. Of Solomon. Here we read that God gave Solomon not only wisdom in his decisions, but note this, he also had great understanding and largeness of heart. Largeness of heart has the idea that Solomon empathized with the people and understood things from their point of view and how certain decisions would affect them. It is important for any person at any level, leader or not, whether it be in the corporate or church or family setting, to have both wisdom and understanding. As someone noted, being a leader at any of these levels is not just about making decisions and expecting the people to follow them, but also about understanding the people you are leading, the ability to see from their point of view and being able to discern how to implement the decisions you have to make into a course of action that the people you are leading will be willing to follow. Too often, leaders fail because they are unwilling or unable to discern how the people they are attempting to lead view things, and then get frustrated because those they lead will not follow their directions and decisions. May God give us more wise leaders like Solomon who also have an understanding heart. Here we see that Solomon's God-given wisdom and understanding was such that among the wisest men of his time in the ancient world, he stood out as the best. His ability to make the right and correct decisions for his people and his country drew the attention of the surrounding nations. In fact, verse 34 says that people from all over the known world came to seek his advice and to visit him. And as we will discuss in a later time, even the famous Queen of Sheba visited Solomon. Perhaps the other countries were afraid to attack or antagonize Solomon because he was so skillful and smart at ruling, which led to peace during his reign. We're told Solomon wrote many wise sayings of which many are God-inspired, like the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomons, as well as two Psalms, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. He also observed and commented on things from plants to animals. This was truly a wise man whose wisdom and understanding of the people came from the Lord. Now putting it all together, we have our fourth organizational wisdom principle, number four. Demonstrate wisdom and understanding to be respected and have followers. Demonstrate wisdom and understanding to be respected and have followers. Wise leaders, without understanding how their decision will affect people, will be thought of as out of touch. And empathetic people without wisdom are people who are considered soft and therefore not able to be followed or they won't have followers. Solomon's display of wisdom and understanding with how he dealt with the two women fighting for the living newborn baby we talked about last week, demonstrated this. That's why after the judgment, the Bible tells us the people were in awe, fear, respected, and followed Solomon. My friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, if we can cultivate and demonstrate spiritual wisdom and understanding, we too will be respected people will naturally want to follow us and want to know our Lord. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. How do we get people to follow and respect us? We imitate Christ. We live out His revealed truths and we emulate His compassionate, loving, and empathetic heart. So my friends, whether in your workplace, your schools, amongst friends or in your family unit, may you, number one, cultivate a team-based approach through delegation and empowerment. Number two, remove traditional boundaries for a more unified focus and goal. Third, to create a safe space, a secure space for people to thrive. And finally, to demonstrate wisdom and understanding to be respected and have followers. I love how the Bible is so practical and through its divine inspiration of the examples we are to follow, it encourages us and teaches us how then to live in this world so that we can be God-honoring and so that our testimony to an unbelieving world will be such that it directs them to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.